It was so deeply traumatic growing up as a fat kid. And I had to decide really early whether or not I was going to like myself and whether or not I was going to grow a thick skin. Like, I knew super early that the way that I was treated by my dad was different than the way he treated my younger, like, thinner, dainty sister. And I knew that I had to, like, provide some of this internal encouragement and, like, praise and confidence. I had to, like, grow that internally myself because I was not externally having that flower or that seed. I wasn't getting that watering of that seed from an external source. That was Sonali Rashatwar, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 158. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great, and we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language. And we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests. And a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. 
Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood. So you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Sonali Rashatwar. Sonali is an award-winning social worker based in Philadelphia. She's a fat, queer, non-binary BEM therapist specializing in treating sexual trauma, body image issues, racial or immigrant identity issues, and South Asian family systems while offering fat-positive sexual health care. Popularly known as the Fat Sex Therapist on Instagram, their fame hit an all-time high when they were featured on Breitbart in March of 2018 for naming thinness as a white supremacist beauty ideal. A sought-after speaker, Sonali travels internationally to curate custom visual workshops that whisper to our change-making spirit and nourish our vision for a more just future. In this episode, Sonali shares deeply honest stories about their journey to being anti-diet, talking openly about the experience of body shame and non-consensual dieting in childhood and of the resulting trauma. We talk about Sonali's graduate school experience, including why she almost quit multiple times, and about how crucial it is to have the right support system and community around you. This conversation goes in so many important directions, with Sonali sharing about shadism and fat phobia, about how to advocate for ourselves at the doctor's office, the politics of desirability, the value in taking penetrative sex off the cultural pedestal we've put it on, and so much more. I'm really grateful to have had this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it and find it just as valuable as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Sonali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with lately. This is a fun way that I like to start these. Oh my gosh. I'm really obsessed with scones lately. Um, There is a baking company out where I went to grad school. I live in Philadelphia and I went to grad school about 15 minutes south of Philadelphia, maybe 20 minutes south. And there is a baking company that makes these blackberry cream cheese scones that are like nothing I have ever had before. And (laughs) for the last two weeks, I've made the 45-minute drive (laughs) all the way out into suburban Pennsylvania to get these stupid scones that are so expensive. (laughs) That's what love looks like. (laughs) I have a deep commitment to food cravings and making myself happy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm going to the UK for two months later this year, and I'm like, how much clotted cream can I have? Like, can I just? Oh have my all of gosh! It? 
take a lifetime supply of lactate with you. I don't know if you're lactose intolerant. (laughs) I'm not, but I was mostly vegan for quite a number of years that I'm sort of slightly transitioning out of a little bit. And so, yeah, I feel like too much dairy in my body's like, "Mm, no, we forgot how to do this actually. Yeah, no. Wow, bless. The ability to, to digest lactose is, you know, a really, we've really underappreciated that ability. <laughs> I'm going to show up at customs with like a suitcase full of lactate. You're going to be like, mm, what, what's happening here? <laughs> I need this. I need it. <laughs> Believe me, this is for my pleasure. It's fine. <laughs> so you recently finished grad school, yes? I did. I finished my degrees at Widen University in 2016. And it was a fucking wild ride. Tell me more. (laughs) Yeah, I knew I couldn't leave it there like that. (laughs) It was three years of my life. Uh, I was in a dual degree program for social work and human sexuality, where at the end of the three years, um, you're basically ready to be a sex therapist. And I had my master's in social work and a master's in education in human sexuality. And the program itself was very helpful in helping me learn the ways that a social worker helps someone see themselves as an individual and part of many systems so that we're better able to see like, oh, I'm experiencing so much anxiety and stress because there's like all of these moving parts circling around my face at all times. And it, that is why I'm, it's causing me stress. My time in grad school was difficult because I had assumed that like, oh, cool. Yeah, we're going to all be like sex therapists or like sex educators or like really rad social workers. Like I knew very little about social work before I had gotten into the program. I had like one friend who was a social worker and she was like, yeah, this is definitely for you because it's like basically a program where you get to be an activist professionally and make money off of it for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh, dope. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I'm that now. And that's, I just want to like get paid to have my opinions that are really fucking red. And when I got there to school, I was like, oh shit, no one else is as rad as I am. (laughs) Mm. And so grad school was really tough because when I started grad school, it was like 2013. And if you remember back in the summer of 2013, George Zimmerman was being put on trial for assassinating Trayvon Martin. And so there were a lot of conversations that were not being had in my classrooms, in my like social work classrooms that were definitely being had amongst me and my peers. And a lot of like my white classmates were, some of them were like social workers and also like anti-Black Lives Matter. And there was a lot of contention on the internet. Cause when we were like all on Facebook back then and I would post stuff about BLM, I would post stuff about Ferguson, um, in 2014. And it, it was so contentious between me and my peers. I had developed like a small group of friends within my specific cohort, which was like the students who were in the social work program and in the sexuality program at the same time as me, which was like 10 students. Like it's a really, really small program. And many of us were on the same page, uh, which was, I was so thankful about. But it was like a very small group of us in like a sea of 
non-political or apolitical or downright conservative, racist, classist, fatphobic peers. It was a lot, much of it was like really difficult actually to get through. I yeah. contemplated like quitting so many times. Yeah. I mean, especially it sounds like the reality of what the experience was, was different from what your expectation was. Right. And when you said, Oh, I'm oh going to go God. and meet these rad folks and learn, you know, do this <laughs> stuff. And then you get there and you're like, uh, hold on actually, where, <laughs> where are my people? <laughs> oh my God. It was horrifying. Um, I, I, even with me and my professors, we like butt heads all the time. Cause I was, I would write these reflection papers, like so disappointed in like my classmates responses and in class or like their comments in class or like their politics. And my professors were like, uh, yeah, like you can't expect everyone to be on the same page as you. And I was like, oh, aghast, like, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> so you said that you thought about quitting a couple of different times. What oh, helped you to not do that? Like what helped you make the decision to stick it out? Oh, so having online community that agreed with me, so for folks who are not white, who are not black, who are uh, so like me, like South Asian, and there's not very many of us in general in, in the U.S., like I think we're 1% of the population. It's like really small. And so whenever you find one of us, you'll find like 100,000 of us because we <laughs> we like to bunch together. <laughs> And so thankfully, my program, I had one other South Asian, which was, I was so grateful for. But having folks online, like on Facebook groups, were the only reason that I was able to survive grad school. Hmm. I was able to have a community of folks who looked like me. So they were brown. They were able to relate to my like ethnic and racial identity issues of like kind of falling between the cracks of like not white or black in the U.S. And sometimes we kind of just get left out of like conversations about race, which isn't so much the case uh, now in 2019, but back then in 2013, it was definitely difficult. And having these Facebook groups really helped me to connect with folks who were South Asian and struggling with like family issues. Because when I grew up, I had South Asian friends who wouldn't really talk about what was really going on at home. And and so I thought, okay, well, that's not something we just talk about. We just talk about like school and like, you know, music and TV and like um, who's turning, who, who, what each person is doing on their sweet 16. Um, but we don't like talk about like deep shit. Like maybe like you talk about that with your one, one best friend, but nobody else. And it had taken me like a decade <laughs> to find brown people who were talking about like having siblings who were struggling with drug addiction or talking about their parents who are fighting because one is like a serial cheater or like talking about what it's like to be gay and like be this living, breathing disappointment, embodied feeling of disappointment for your parents and to your extended family, because you're not going to live out this reality that they have imagined for me. Um, so it was my first time finding community who is experiencing this like alternative Indian American or South Asian American life where we're not going to be doctors because we don't want to be. I don't have an interest in getting married to a man because I don't, I don't want to. 
I'm probably not going to have kids because I don't think I, I'm like reproductively can. And also, I don't know if I want to like questioning these things that are taken as truth, like sacred, unquestionable traditions that we should just do because everyone's done it. And I finally found a community that was like, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think this is, I feel like a through line of this podcast in lots of different, you know, we talk about lots of different genres and topics, but this, the like comfort and healing of hearing someone share something that you can resonate with, right? They're like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. And that there's something incredibly powerful. Like sometimes it just takes one other person, right? If there's a thing that you haven't been able to talk about, or you, like you said, you know, you were socialized into not talking about outside of your family or any of these different things that I think a lot of folks can relate to. Just when you start to find community of, okay, like it's, it's not just me. There's something, I mean, just incredibly healing about that. Oh, cause in going to therapy school, I learned all these tools for putting words to my emotions and kind of contextualizing what I have experienced as a kid into understanding how it's created me to be this person I am today. And I was finally coming into this person where I was like, oh, fuck, like, I've survived a lot of intense shit. And now I'm ready to talk about it. And I want people who look like me to be able to talk about it because I'm experiencing like racism from my white peers and I don't have brown folks who look like me. And there really weren't very many, many um, black classmates either. Like if I was w the one South Asian or one Asian, there were like two or three black kids. Like there were really not very many of us. And I think I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, then that's where you were going with that. <laughs> well, you brought up something interesting when you said that, you know, going through therapy school gave you more language, right? To talk about your own mm. experience. That was actually going to be one of my questions is like going through that training to be in that role for other people. I'm interested in like maybe one or two specific things that that helped you with personally, whether it was like, oh, I didn't have language for this thing and now that I do, or oh, this helped me to heal like this specifically. Ooh. Only because I'm so many years out, I'm like forgetting what big insights I had. But I remember writing papers on fat identity. And I came into this understanding of, because in my last year of therapy school, I was an intern for the place that I'm working at now. And I'm actually in the process of quitting, which, and for good reasons, not for bad reasons. But I was interning as a sexual assault counselor. And I was noticing that many of my clients that I work with, and we call them clients, not patients, because uh, it like medicalizes our interactions in ways that uh, might not always feel good. So in working with my clients, I noticed that there were many that were experiencing significant body image issues in healing through their sexual trauma. And the body image issues may have been there before the sexual trauma, but sometimes uh, they've just been ex exacerbated by the experience of sexual trauma. And in some of my papers, what I would write is um, how we must be able to heal sexual trauma through embodiment. So that means like when we get really stressed out and overwhelmed inside of our body, we are like consciousness can leave our body and we can dissociate sometimes 
where we'll like lose chunks of time or we'll be like, oh, what did I just do for the last 45 minutes? Or maybe we're having some really intense anxiety inside our body and it doesn't feel good. So we dissociate. And the solution for that is being able to ground ourselves inside of our body and find ways to feel comfortable in, in within embodiment. And I noticed that for my fat clients who had also experienced sexual trauma, there was this like additional discomfort with embodiment because of the fat phobia that they experienced. Mm-hmm. And fat phobia is really specific in that it has this explicit demand from fat individuals that they be performing their penance for being fat. Like fat people are demanded to feel like remorseful and sad and like, like they're in pain and like, um, and like they're undeserving of existing because um, they need to prove that they understand that their value is less worthy. And when they don't do that, when, when we as fat people don't do that, that is often when we'll experience fat phobia in the form of like, how dare you? have this much confidence. Um, how dare you put this package of cupcakes in your shopping basket? Um, I'm going to comment on it. So for, for instance, I had a client who would have, she would be in the grocery store, which she eventually developed anxiety about going into grocery stores because of this experience, but she would be in the grocery store and people would, strangers in the grocery store would comment on what she had put in her shopping cart because of her fatness. And People would remove items from her shopping cart without her consent um, and say things like, oh, I'm doing you a favor. Oh, God. Yeah, it was horrifying. And, and that is the way the public treats fat people. And so there's this additional level of like boundary violation. Because what I think of for sexual trauma, I don't just think of sexual assault as the only form of sexual trauma. I think of a sexual boundary violation as a form of sexual trauma. Like we just broaden the definition as, as wide as we can get because there are actually so many things that are considered sexual trauma. If we consider, Hey, someone took off the condom uh, midway and didn't let me know, didn't ask my permission. That's a sexual boundary that I was not, I I did not consent to renegotiating. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, another instance would be someone being really coercive, like, Hey, you know, we haven't had sex in a couple of weeks and, you know, you promised that we would finally have sex at the end of this week. And like, I know you said you're not comfortable, but like you promised. And, you know, if you really loved me, you would do this for me because this is what partners are supposed to do for each other. And if, you know, if you don't do it with me, I'm just going to have to find someone else to do it with. So this like coerciveness where we feel like we are owed, we owe sex to someone is also a boundary violation because someone is not respecting our no. Some big insights uh, involve this overlap and understanding of surviving as a fat person as traumatic and surviving fat phobia as, as trauma, like unlearning diet culture as a form of trauma. So I received like specialized training in identifying, diagnosing, and treating trauma in in therapy school. 
And it really helped me to understand that when we politicize our understanding of trauma, we're not just thinking of issues that primarily affect white folks, uh, traumatic things that primarily affect white folks, which usually we might think of like, if you think of trauma, we might think of like war or sexual assault or something like that. But if we think of things that, that cause trauma in populations of color, we might think of like colonization or occupation or surviving racialized capitalism or surviving anti-blackness. And so what I do that's really unique in my therapy work is I politicize our treatment modalities so that they, <laughs> they're adaptable and applicable to myself, number one, <laughs> and also populations that don't look like the people who created those theories, which are usually like white folks. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we learned of was like created by like white men and women. And it's not to say that they're the framework of what they created isn't always um, universal. It just has to be adapted um, in really specific ways to actually apply to folks who don't look like the creators um, of those treatment modalities. And that's the interesting thing that I do. Yeah. That's I a mean, little bit different. And even being able to name, because I think you're right that, you know, when we hear the word trauma, I think there's pretty specific things that come to mind, right? Like you mentioned war, you mentioned sexual assault. And so it's being able to, like you said, even I, I would imagine this is really healing for folks to be like this thing that you're experiencing, like this is trauma. It might not have been something you thought was trauma because we're not told that that's what trauma is or looks like, but being able to like even name that for what it is. Like it's not, hey, it's not just you that feels this way. It's this is traumatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pivoting, I guess not really pivoting because everything that we're talking about is related, but from a personal story standpoint, I would love if we could step back and discuss your personal journey to being anti-diet. I know that's a, a term that you use. Where would you like to start with that story? Oh, I mean, we can't start. If we're going to go it chronologically, then, you know, we got to start in childhood. And... The story starts, and if you have also grown up fat, this might be upsetting to hear. So my journey to being anti-diet started around age 8, 9, and 10 when I was put on non-consensual diets by my parents. And just for context, my family grew up in Jersey, which is a state that I love very deeply. And I often joke that I love New Jersey so much that I was born there and I will die there. And my family was living there when I was uh, pretty young in a town that was blue collar. And I say all of these things because they're important to understand why the way that we ate when we were young changed so drastically um, within the span of like four to five years. So when I was really young, I was like eight, nine, and 10. And I knew that I was being treated differently than my younger sister who was smaller than me. She was like slender and like thin, but also like daintier looking. And even the clothes that they would put her in were more feminine than me. And I remember wearing mostly pants as a kid. That's what I'm, I was mostly comfortable in. I was also like a really active kid. Like 
uh, me and my neighbors, we had like this big gang of kids and we would like roam the streets until like the streetlights came on and like we would make mud pies in the background in the backyard and like in our plastic frisbees and like one of our friends had a trampoline and my family had a, a jungle gym and so we like lived outside. We only came inside and like played video games when it was like raining in the summer. And I became anti-diet because of this history of being put on non-consensual diets where I was explicitly told that the way my body was changing was inappropriate and it needed to be controlled. So when I was in that age range, like pre-puberty, it's actually really normal for bodies to gain a lot of weight. Like we're talking like 60 pounds in a really short amount of time where we kind of like get fat and then we get tall and then we get fat and then we get tall and then we get fat and then we get a little bit taller. And I was going through that process and it was like, I guess my parents just were scared of what was going to happen to me if I were to live a life as a fat person. And I'm like, spoiler alert, too late, fat, and it's great. So (laughs) suck it. And (laughs) my mom, I mean, what I understand now is that my mom was so scared of me growing up as fat, growing up to be fat because of her own body anxiety. So both my parents are what I would consider to be fat people. Um, Using the fat spectrum created by Ash on the Fat Lip podcast. Uh, What she identifies as like a range of small fat, you know, medium fat, super fat, and infinifat. You know, on that spectrum of fatness, you know, my parents are probably on like the micro fat range, (laughs) which is like really, like you're still discernibly larger than like a slender person, but you still wouldn't be considered someone who like wouldn't fit in a chair in a doctor's office, just for example, because fat can be an access issue. So for me as a super fat person, like if I'm taking a flight to India to see my family, like I am going to have bruises on my hips from the airline seats because the airline seat was not created with my body in mind. And the same thing goes for like, oh my God, I remember this like horrifying experience. Like I have anxiety going to the theater now because the last time my family went, my mom was like, oh, I really want to go to Broadway. I want to see like a Broadway play. And, you know, we're from Jersey and we don't really go up to New York that often as a family. (laughs) And we go up to Broadway, we get these tickets, we're going to see Chicago And the seat is so tiny and I'm so embarrassed because I'm like overflowing onto my sister on my left because she's very sweet and sensitive. And so she knows that I'm going to need to lean toward her side a little bit so that I can, you know, relieve the person on my right side Mm -hmm. from having to overflow onto them. And the entire performance, I'm talking like a two and a half hour show probably, The poor dude, I I say poor dude, but like, I do not have empathy for him because he was actually extremely rude to me. The poor dude who was sitting one row below me, there was really not a lot of space between my feet and the back of his head. 
um, because this theater, the theater seats were just not designed for people who, who are not slim. And so anytime he would like laugh at something or like react or like turn to his um, partner's uh, head to like say something, he, his head would like hit my knees and he would like look back at me like upset. And the same thing with his partner, uh, she would look back at me upset and they left after intermission. They would, they did not continue to sit there and they did not say anything to me either, thankfully, but it was mortifying. Mm. And no one in my family acknowledged it, which is like one of the hardest parts of being fat. Like my, my sister was very well aware and she was like, so good at like witnessing with me and me and her are very close and it's taken a lot of time for us to be able to have like some kind of reconciliation around my fatness because she was deputized into diet culture and policing my food by my parents at a very young age because they had convinced her that like Sonali is harming herself by eating these foods. And it's important for you to let us know when she's eating food, she shouldn't be eating. And so they made my sister this like food police Mm. and this person who had to take responsibility for her older sister in ways that really wasn't appropriate. So back to Broadway, we're sitting in this theater and my sister is really good about like letting me know, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing this and it's not right. What's happening to you. And And I feel badly about it. And, you know, it's so small. That acknowledgement is probably like such a small thing for her to do, but it means so much because my family, either they're like intentionally ignoring it or they like are too embarrassed to stand up for me. It's, it's devastating. Like me as an adult over 30 I will not travel back to India after the way that my family refused to acknowledge the fat phobia that I was experiencing or stand up for me. We had traveled back to India in 2016, I want to say, so this is a couple years ago. And it's a very common tradition to go back to India because... <laughs> When, like, my cousins get married, and, like, I have a lot of cousins. Like, my Indian family is huge. And, you know, every year there's always, like, two or three cousins that are getting married. And in Indian families, like, we don't just consider our first cousins cousins. Like, we consider, like, (laughs) our cousins cousins are also our cousins. And, like, (laughs) my mom's cousins children are also my cousins. (laughs) Lots of cousins. (laughs) (laughs) Millions of cousins. So they're always like endless cousins. Yeah. <laughs> there are always like two or three cousins who get married and wedding season is really big in India in December, which is really good for us. Cause usually when we were in, in like grade school, you, you get off for winter break and we don't celebrate Christmas, but we would go to India. We would have that time off. But this time when we went, um, two of my cousins were getting married Two of my first cousins, which is a big deal. Like first cousins are like significant. And when I was with family, it was okay. I was like kind of insulated. People would stare always. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to India, but the way people stare at you is like they're 
scraping the flesh off of your bones. Like they're like inspecting like every inch of you. And there isn't this unspoken rule where, you know, don't stare at strangers. (laughs) They don't have that there. (laughs) And the way they stare feels like almost invasive. I mean, it, it does. It feels invasive. And when my family went to India this time, I was like extra cautious to to not really be going anywhere by myself because of, you know, how badly people would stare. Um, And then my family decided like, okay, we're going to tack on um, an extra seven days and we're going to go see Nepal. And I was like, okay, let's do it. It's probably gorgeous up there. Let's do it. And it was, it was absolutely gorgeous. But the fat phobia that I experienced was like appalling And my family does not, like, if I were to tell them, like, that was horrifying, they're like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you, what you're talking about, because I didn't see any of that. Like, when we were walking through Nepal, like, my family, we we would be, like, climbing up mountains. Like, it's a mountainside, and they're, like, it's not hiking, but it's, like, um, let me try to paint a picture. It's like a, a holy place and you have to take like one of those cable cars to get up to the mountain where you're going to walk up like steps to get up to the place where you, the actual like mandir is, which is like the holy temple. And there's like all these little shops on the, on your left and right selling like, you know, offerings to offer in the temple and like cute little keychains and stuff, like things that you don't need. And there's lots of people. And my family would just like, they would go up the steps and they would like, leave me behind. Like no one thought, oh, okay, maybe we got to walk a little bit slower so that's not all I can keep up. Like nothing like that. And children would like follow me because I was like at the end of the line. No one was back there with me. And they would like take photos of me and they would like laugh. And I don't speak Nepali, so I don't know what they were saying, but I mean, it's probably not nice. And people would take photos of me in airports. People would take photos of me when we were at a restaurant eating with my family. People would take videos of me walking by on the street. People would point and laugh. We were like getting clothing made and people would tell me, no, I'm I do I'm not going to make this outfit for you. Like ready-made clothes are not available there like they are here. So you go to a tailor. And a tailor has like endless fabric to work with and they can make you, you know, you know whatever you want. You want to look like you know Princess Diana and you want to wear one of her outfits. Yeah, a tailor can make that for you. But tailors would tell me like, "No, I'm not going to make you the clothes that you want." Mm. Um and not because the fabric is not available. Because, like, I, I don't want to. I don't want to make clothes for your body. And no one in my family was like, oh, okay, that's not appropriate. I want to, I should stand up for you and advocate for you. Ugh. It's horrifying. And yeah, now I refuse. incredibly painful. I will not go back to India. I will not. Like, a family is, my cousin, my one of my first cousins is getting married there in October. And I have, oh. I so badly want to be there to support him. And I just, I don't think I can do it. Mm -hmm. (sighs) 
Yeah. And so, you know, when we started talking about this, you know, it was about how, you know, your journey to now being anti-diet. And I feel like that story that you just shared or those couple of stories that you shared, first of all, I mean, that was beautiful honesty. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I mean, I think that that I don't know what I thought your answer was going to be, right? To being anti-diet, <laughs> but I think it's like the the like people's honest lived experiences, right? That's the answer. Yeah. It was so deeply traumatic growing up as a fat kid and I had to decide really early whether or not I was going to like myself and whether or not I was going to grow a thick skin. Like I knew super early that the way that I was treated by my dad was different than the way he treated my younger, like thinner, dainty sister. And I knew that I had to like provide some of this internal encouragement and like praise and confidence. I had to like grow that internally myself because I was not externally having that flower or that seed. I wasn't getting that watering of that seed from an external source. So I had to internally find a way to water that seed. Mm -hmm. And so being anti-diet is like a political position where I'm like, no, I am not going to bend to change myself for a world that is so violent to people who don't fit in the box. I'm not going to do it. One, because being put on all those diets as a kid made me feel like a fucking failure. Because every time I wasn't able to lose weight, I thought, wow, I'm a fucking failure. Like, I can't do anything right. And it was never me. It was the fucking diet. Mm -hmm. The diet is the one that failed because diets are designed to fail. That's why diet culture exists. It exists to make money. It's a business. They don't want you to lose weight. Because then if you lose weight and it's successful and you can keep it off forever, you would never come back. You wouldn't diet again. You wouldn't purchase another product. (laughs) My mom is like very tapped into diet culture. Like mine too. Yeah. Oh, she told me about this like laserless liposuction that she did. And I was like, mom, what, what are you doing? And she knows how I feel about diet culture. Like I try as much as I can to bring her on board. I'm like, I try to leave like (laughs) my Virgie Tovar books out. (laughs) And like when we were driving to South Carolina over Christmas break, I like, made her listen to a food psych podcast in the car (laughs) Uh, in hopes of like, you know, sparking her, her mind. But there is no, there is this like deep seated understanding that her body has less value because of how fat it is. Mm -hmm. And she's received that message as a kid growing up in the U S growing up in the time of the seventies in the age of Twiggy and like peak diet culture in the 70s and 80s when you think of like jazzercise and like diets like diet food that you take home and like you eat at home mm-hmm. and my mom hears it from my dad too like my dad will say things like like nasty mean things to her which i identify as body image abuse i name it very plainly he'll say things like why are you going to the gym? It doesn't make a difference anyway. Meaning like you you haven't lost any weight. So why are you bothering? Like as if there's no other purpose to moving your body other than weight loss. Mm-hmm. And my mom takes 
she is like on some kind of like weird powder thing that she mixes into all her food to change her metabolism so that she might lose weight. And it's literally, it's so silly. And she's been doing it for like a couple of years now. And she thinks it's her pharmacist is giving it to her. And I'm like, mom, this is so unethical. And my dad will say the same thing. He'll say like, why are you wasting all this money? It's not, it's not doing anything like it is factual, but he's also not saying it in a positive way. It's to ridicule her body. And it's to let her know, like, you're not doing anything to increase your worth and value. And my mom is also a dark skinned woman, dark skinned. I'm sorry. That's incorrect. (laughs) Within South Asia, we have shadism which is a unique form of colorism, which is still under the umbrella of anti-Black racism. And shadism means there are many words for all of the shades that exist between someone who is fair or someone who is closer to whiteness and someone who is dark or closer to Blackness. And my mom is, she's not actually dark skinned. Like she does not look like a black skinned person, but she is darker than a fair person. And so the word for that, and I'm going to use the word so that you can hear how absurd it is, is wheatish, like wheat, Hmm. you look wheatish. And (laughs) because of that compounding oppression and marginalization that she experiences, it's like a doubly bad that she's fat because not only is she fat, she's also considered dark. And again, dark, it does not mean black. It just means, you know, non-white something in between white and black. And so there's this like extra pressure to conform into beauty standards. So my mom still goes to the South Asian beauty parlor. We call it like a, we call it a salon and she goes and she has her skin bleached uh, once every couple months. And I don't know if it does anything. And we talk about it every time she does it. Like, mom, why do you do that? Mom, it's not good for you. Mom, it's kind of silly. Mom, look at this campaign. Dark is beautiful and unfair and lovely. Because skin bleaching cream is like a huge industry um, and part of the South Asian beauty industry. I mean, it's global. It exists in many places like the Caribbean, uh, West Africa as well, Uh, East Asia especially. And we talk about how this is just a market created to to exploit people's insecurities. And still she does it. Yeah. I, you know, when you said, talked about her being really indoctrinated into diet culture, that resonates with me a lot. I have very clear memories of being young and my the boxes showing up to the house of all the Nutrisystems food that my mother was eating. And like that's that's what she would eat, right? This like this food that would come in these little packages and food was really moralized. That was something that I learned as a kid, right? Like these are good foods and these are bad foods and I'm being good by eating these foods and I'm being bad by eating these foods. That was a lesson that we learned after we moved and ascended. We experienced like class ascension in my preteens. So when I was younger, we lived in this like poorer town and we ate, like I remember delicious meals of like meatloaf and my dad's like masala crab legs and like 
like fresh homemade carrot cake and fried chicken. And those are the types of things that I remember as a kid. And I say fried chicken because my mom grew up in the South. So we have like very traditional Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving sounds like Thanksgiving. And I'm talking about the holiday at the end of November, but we say Thanksgiving to acknowledge that it's a holiday that celebrates native genocide. And those really good food memories from when we were in that poorer town changed drastically when we moved to a richer town where suddenly there was this like great acknowledgement of food that we shouldn't be eating. Like I remember as a kid, like one of my favorite memories as, as a kid when I was like before the age of 10 is every Friday night we would go to our local like video rental little, little shop and we would get a movie and then we would walk next door and we would get Chinese food. And so every Friday night I grew up eating like delicious, like steamed pork dumplings, which is like still such a deep comfort food for me. And we would watch like, you know, probably like a kid's movie together. And it was like a really great family activity every Friday night. And when we moved to a richer town, I mean, first of all, it was more expensive to live there. So I rarely saw my parents like in an immigrant family, I feel like we didn't have the luxury of having two parents at home or even one parent at home. I had like no parents at home. And when I was older, we were latchkey kids where I would like let us in and we might have someone come to like, you know, make sure we stayed in the house. But when we were little, little, we, I was raised by like babysitters and stuff um, because my mom had to work full time in order for my dad to have a business. And I never saw my parents. And only when we rose the ranks um, and experienced this class ascension, did we suddenly like stop eating KFC and like uh, not have dumplings on Fridays and start eating like uh, snack wells and like those light snack packs and like calorie conscious things and Mm -hmm. really went back to eating like whole wheat, like Indian food, whole wheat, um, roti and like oil free Indian food, uh, which is like deeply sad Indian food (laughs) and, uh, salads and a lot of fresh fruit and like very little snack materials that a kid would like to eat. There was this very strong awareness of if you're a responsible parent, this is how you feed your kids and you don't feed your kids things that are fattening when we move to a richer town. Yeah. What do you feel like you learned from that as opposed to like you said, cause that was like, sounds like a clear division, right? Like we lived here and oh, yeah. food was treated this way. Right. And so I think anytime we go through something where there is uh, more of a clear before and after, like we are sort of socialized into different things. Oh yeah. I feel like it's a clear message that if we try to be as thin as possible, maybe we'll experience less racism Mm. because the experience of racism in the richer town was very different. Meaning my body was policed, not just for its fatness, but also it's like race and presentation and also like 
my gender identity and also like my sexual orientation. Like I remember that some of the, some of the weirdest things I would learn were from the kids at my school bus stop. Like I would really learn about what American kids who were not immigrants, what they did day to day and that they had like TVs in their rooms and that like when they got home, their mom was there and that their mom made them a snack and like they just lived really different lives and nothing that me or my sister, cause we were closer than in age, me and my sister, my brother was never at our bus stop cause he was um, a little bit younger than my sister. So it was always me and my sister and you know, nothing that we wore was ever like expensive looking enough. Um, they would critique everything and when I say critique, I mean make fun of. Right, right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, kids critiquing. <laughs> kids being assholes and bullies, sure, yes. Yeah, let's, let's be honest. That, that's exactly what was happening. And I, I talked about this on a previous interview, but I remember this really clear example of this girl at my bus stop commenting on my side part. So like the way that my hair was parted. And she was like, you know, why are you parting your hair on the side? And I was like, what is that? Like, is that a bad thing? And then she was like, only lesbians wear side parts. And I was like maybe 10 or 11 and I had no idea what a lesbian was. And so I was like, you know, oh my God, I'm so confused. Like, what is that? And of course I would never have asked her like, what is a lesbian? But I like, me and my sister were like, you know, what is that? Oh my God. Like, should I make a, a, like a part down the middle now? But like the way that my body was policed was not just because of its fatness. Like I couldn't find clothes that were age appropriate that came in my size. Yeah. And so that meant that I had to wear clothes for people who were older than me or like my mom's clothes. And she was like a grown adult in her late thirties. <laughs> and I would have to wear like her jackets to school or like I would just wear weird things sometimes. Like I would wear like a, a slip with no bra and like just inappropriate things to school sometimes because <laughs> my parents were busy. They weren't like always paying attention. <laughs> and the kids at my bus stop would always tell me, they would be like, they would always let me know, like your hair is too bushy. Um, your eyebrows are too thick. Why do you have mustache hair? Uh, you're, you're like, your body's too hairy or like, you know, why are you wearing that jacket? That's not for kids. Um, like the body policing was so intense um, as a kid yeah. <laughs> in a richer town. <laughs> I mean, and it makes sense what you said before about, um, you know, your belief or your family's belief at that age that, well, if we can do whatever possible to be thinner, then that removes at least one element of this oppression or this kind of bullying. And I wish that that were the case. Yeah. I wish that that were true. Yeah. But, you know, my sister experienced uh, plenty of her own racism. I remember, like, having to pretend to be her mom and, like, call some kid on the phone and be like, you know, did you call Rapali Rashatwar a bitch? And, you know, the kid was, like, so afraid and, like, terrified. And she was like, I'm so sorry. And, like... <laughs> I, I had to like stand up for my sister <laughs> and my mom had to stand up for me because of the racism that we experienced mm -hmm. uh, in that town. It took a few years, like way too long before other South Asians joined us in that town 
Because like I told you, like when there's one, there's going to be a hundred thousand. And once I had hit high school, so we had moved there in like fourth grade. And once I had hit high school, so it had been like four or five years, (laughs) there were finally more people who looked like me who lived in the town. And so, you know, to me it was better because then I had a group of friends that I could like hide into. Um, I had people who look like me and people who, I went to a very diverse high school. So there were like Vietnamese kids. There were Nigerian kids. There was like, there were kids from Honduras. There were like uh, kids from Pakistan, kids from Bangladesh, kids from India, kids from Korea. Uh, We had everyone. And so it was very different in high school. It was less weird to not be white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I know that you said that you wanted to talk about today was the connection that you've made between fatness or for you, fatness and non-binary gender. Can you talk about that? Ooh, yeah. So I am really grateful for being fat and I can list you like 25 reasons why I'm so thankful that I grew up fat and I stayed fat. And one of the biggest reasons is that it has made me question the ways that I've assumed things should be. And what I mean to say when I say that is that my fatness inherently queered my gender. My fatness made me harder to be desired by a typical cisgender heterosexual man. My fatness and my brownness and my comfort with kind of this like non-binariness, this like feeling of in-between genders and not really any at all makes me harder to fit into the box of normal. And that's a good thing for me (laughs) because then I got to decide for myself, you know, what do I actually like and what do I want to do? And instead of asking or telling myself, this is what you should do, I got to decide. So I didn't end up like a lot of my South Asian peers in high school where there was not this impetus to question the norm or question tradition they just followed through. And that's not me making assumptions. Like maybe there was still questioning on their ends. I don't know. But what happened was you went to college. You traditionally should pick from one of like three professions, primarily, of course, choosing being a doctor or something in medicine. Um, And then soon after you should get married and it should be a heterosexual marriage. And soon after that, you should have children um, because we have to the system has to move forward. The system has to like continue to exist. And the only way it does is if we all follow the order that has existed before this. But my fatness allowed me to, to not fit in the box so comfortably. Mm. And so what I had to decide was, do I want to force myself in the box or do I just want to find some comfort outside of it and find some reason why it's good that I didn't fit in it? Because if I had fit in it, I might have married a 34-year-old South Asian man when I was 19, which my parents almost let me do because I was thinner than I am now. 
And they were like, you know, the way that she's gaining weight, she's only valuable as thin as, as she can be. And so exactly. And so they were saying to themselves, my mom even said it pretty recently. I want to say that was like two or three years ago, maybe even sooner than that. She was like, remember that time? She was like, maybe you should have gotten married to that guy at that time. And, you know, it is amazing how well I can contain my rage. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> that's not how I feel about that time in my life. <laughs> in fact, I'm glad that I didn't do that at age 19. Thanks for your input. Yeah. Like, I never would have gone. I would never would have finished college. I never would have uh, went to grad school. I never would have found language for what I had experienced. I never would have gone through this like abusive relationship after, um, well, it was at the end of college where I realized like, oh shit, I have been thinking that I deserve bad treatment for most of my life and haven't been raising my standards. And so have just been comfortable being around pieces of shit human beings. I would not have learned these really valuable lessons if I had not taken the time to get to know myself. Mm-hmm. And stayed fucking fat. <laughs> because being fat has taught me so much about the world. Like, I can walk into any party and tell you every person who is fat phobic because they will not look me in the eyes. They will not have a conversation with me. They will not uh, sit and talk to me other than small talk. They will not bother to ask me questions or get to know me. They... Like I'm like, um, I'm like someone who's infected. It's like my fat is like infectious. And if someone gets too close to me, they might, you know, bloat up into the blueberry on, you know, Willy Wonka if they get too close to me. That is how good my radar has gotten to be able to find individuals who are trustworthy, who are sincere and are able to value human beings without the superficial bullshit. That is what experiencing and surviving fat phobia has taught me. Mm-hmm. And it's so valuable to be able to know who, who you can and can't trust in a place where one's sexual desirability is like, it's worth money. So like here in the U S this is a, I, I wouldn't say it's a new concept or a new theory or understanding, but there's this idea of desirability as the root of many forms of oppression, where someone's sexual capital and someone's sexual desirability determines their worth as human beings. And this can explain why a fat woman is less likely to get a job after a job interview, because her sexual desirability in that interview has been determined to be less worthy than a thinner candidate. The same thing can be said about a dark-skinned woman and in comparison to a light-skinned woman getting treatment at a coffee shop. You know, if someone is is living with anti-Black racism, which we all are, uh, everyone is living through white supremacy, um, we can't fully eradicate our anti-Black racism. And so we have to acknowledge that we are constantly unlearning it and discovering new places within ourselves that it exists and desirability will determine this black person's experience in a coffee shop because that sexual desirability will determine whether that black person can 
uh, sit in the coffee shop without having to buy anything or just take up space in general. And if that black person is experiencing multiple marginalizations, so I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about fatness, I'm talking about lookism, I'm talking about disability. So if this black person has any visible disabilities or is experiencing lookism, so look, lookism means like you're not, you're considered culturally ugly. You're considered not conventionally attractive. Mm. Uh, you might have pockmarks from acne growing up. These are things that are, that contribute towards someone's experience of oppression based on desirability. And so when we politicize how we look in the way that it determines our treatment, we're better able to understand the politics of desirability. In actually, when we move through the world, people are treating us badly based on based on that alone. It's not just, oh, uh, that person is having a bad day. Uh, yeah, sometimes that's the case. And sometimes if you're consistently experiencing bad treatment, it can be your your desirability. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is related or if this is, you know, a good place to make this segue, but I know in your work as a sex therapist, one of the things that you focus on is decolonizing sexuality, which Mm. I don't know that that's a term or a phrase that I had heard before hearing it from you. And this idea that the belief of much of what we experience as acceptable sexuality has been shaped by colonialism. I'm really curious to learn more about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So desirability is shaped by colonialism, meaning what we consider desirable is influenced by white supremacy, right? White supremacy tells us that those who are white and those who are fair, like uh, fair-skinned, are most valuable and most beautiful. So white supremacy informs desirability. This is a larger conversation. Desirability is part of a larger conversation around decolonizing sexuality. So... I came to this conversation through grad school because what I was experiencing in grad school was this like erasure of my identity and my experience from our coursework, from our curricula, from our textbooks, from our literature. I was not feeling represented in my, in any of the materials that I was seeing. And we were not talking about South Asians. We were not talking about people who have survived colonization. We were not talking about how to treat individuals who have a legacy of living in a diaspora as immigrants. And so I, I was experiencing anger and rage and, and sadness in not seeing myself represented. And so what I was able to identify through that process was that the way we are taught to be sex therapists, the way we're taught to be therapists, the way we're taught to be academics or clinicians is inherently colonized because we're only receiving a narrow scope of what we should be considering normal or what should be considered a universal or universally applicable way to understand all people. And that is always through the lens of whiteness. So in all of my In most of my coursework, we were learning from academics who were white, theorists who were white, clinicians who were white, my professors were white, a lot of most of my peers were white. And what this does is it subtly reinforces this narrative that whiteness is the norm, it's the center, and everything else outside of it is alternative. 
and everything outside of it is what we have to like, you know, work to relate to. And if we had decolonized this idea that whiteness should be the center of everything, instead we would center it with the most marginalized. And in fact, that would better help us to understand not just everyone, but also white folks existing outside of that new center. Because we already consume media, books, literature. We already consume media through the lens of whiteness. A lot of my friends, especially those who are like folks of color and LGBTQ AI, will like watch um, media and we sometimes we won't have an issue with it being white all the time because we have grown up with it for so long that we develop these really vivid imaginations where we're actually able to imagine the character as someone who looks like us or we're able to imagine this like Elsa and Anna sistership in a Disney movie as actually a romance and we'll actually completely revamp a storyline to fit what makes sense to us so that we can adapt this white lens to our own lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And that is what I'm trying to do, or that's what I, I was able to do with my curricula is that I was able to adapt it in a way that makes sense to me. Okay. All this shit is rooted in white supremacy because we're assuming whiteness as the center and basis of understanding everyone else, what if we flipped it? And so in decolonizing sexuality, what I'm asking is, is for us to take critical theory and question everything, especially the things that are no longer fitting us. So questioning the boxes that we can't fit into, which means that they're essentially not big enough for us. They're not, they're not made for us. We're not supposed to fit in them questioning traditions, questioning the way things are, as instead of this is just the way things are, you know, we should just accept them instead of just saying it like that. Instead, saying something like, well, someone taught us that this is the way things are. Mm -hmm. And things don't have to always be that way. Yeah. I mean, so and following this thread a little bit, something that you recently said on Instagram that I really connect with. I mean, first of all, you're like one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. So everyone, oh. everyone who's listening should go do that immediately. Um, but <laughs> you said, um, take penetrative sex off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for anyone who does follow you on Instagram, like you share, you know, simple, clear, bold truths. And then, you know, with really great explanatory captions, but that one in specific caught my attention. And I'm interested if you can expand on that a little bit, because I think this sort of relates to what you're saying of, you know, we're told sexuality has to look a certain way or it includes certain acts or sex means A happens, then B happens, then C happens. And this idea of taking penetrative sex off the pedestal that we've put it on was really interesting to me. Thank you for the love of that post. Uh, yeah, it's the reason that I post it is because I actually work with so many individuals because my my clinical focus is within sexual trauma. So I primarily work with individuals who have experienced and survived sexual trauma, I am really well aware of the many ways that trauma physically impacts the body as well as um, psychologically impacts the brain and and the body also. And one of the biggest ways it affects our ability to want to have sex at all. 
So like we're talking about libido, we're talking about desire, we're talking about arousal. And it also impacts sometimes our ability to accept or desire penetrative sex. So there are actually like several common conditions that someone with a vagina can develop because of trauma, because of anything which involve a pelvic pain disorder. So that might mean experiencing intense muscle clenching within the vaginal canal. It might mean having a really difficult time uh, experiencing penetrative sex. It might mean experiencing extreme pain while having penetrative sex. It might mean uh, experiencing a panic attack when someone might have penetrative sex because of how painful it is. It might, it might feel like a burning sensation within the, the vaginal canal or even outside of the vaginal canal, like the ring of muscle tissue around the opening of the vagina. And the reason I, I say all of those things really specifically is because some folks walk through the world thinking that what they're experiencing is like they're the only one in the whole world who's experiencing it. And I promise you that is almost never the case. (laughs) Someone can usually relate. And I actually work with several clients who have survived sexual trauma, who experience vaginismus. And also I have several friends who experience vaginismus, which is this intense tightening of the muscle tissue in the vaginal canal so that penetrative sex is difficult, it's painful, and it's not pleasurable at all. And so I feel like it's really important for us to acknowledge, like, if you don't like having penetrative sex, then don't have it. (laughs) Like, there's actually no obligation to have penetrative sex ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what a burden it it is to say, uh, that feels like it's being lifted when I say that to someone who feels like, oh, I thought that I had to try to have it anyway. And I, I say, no, you don't. <laughs> and it's the same thing that a dietitian had said to me at age 19. She was like, why do you keep coming to these appointments when you have no desire to lose weight? I was like, I don't know. You're like my therapist. I just talked to you about stuff. I talked to you about how annoying my mom is putting me on all these diets. And she was like, you know that you don't have to lose weight, right? And I was like, oh, what? I was like flabbergasted because no one had told me this thing that I was assuming to be like a sacred truth. We all must do this thing. This is what everybody does. Oh, I don't have to do that. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's a simple thing that we all have to say because what penetrative sex is, is it's this centralizing and prioritization of what mainstream society, which is like white, Christian, cisgender, hetero, sexist society tells us is like the pinnacle of losing one's virginity, which again is not real, but the pinnacle of having sex is having sex with someone who's a cisgender man who has a penis and someone who's a cisgender woman who has a vagina and the entering of one's penis into a vagina. Mm -hmm. And that is what having sex is. And if you're not doing that, then nothing else you're doing is actually sex. But when we continue to buy into that narrative, we're actually like creating a hierarchy of what is valid sex. And we're actually only putting cishet folks at the top of that hierarchy and we're devaluing any other t- sex that anyone else is having. <laughs> and what it does is that's actually queerphobic. 
that's actually transphobic, that's actually ableist, because not everyone is even able to have penetrative sex. Not everyone even wants to have penetrative sex. So let's just flatten that hierarchy altogether. Take penetrative sex off of that goddamn pedestal, and let's consider all sex sex. So even foreplay can be sex. But sex is sex. So all those people who think like, oh, I got around the loophole of not of waiting till marriage to have sex by having butt sex. Like, no, girl, that's sex. (laughs) (laughs) If genitals were in your mouth, if genitals were near your hands, if genitals were in other genitals, you were having sex. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's, and it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even this permission slip of, hey, can I take a step back and like look at this thing that I've been told? Like you said, like I've been told this is what sex is. I've been told that I have to lose weight, right? Like those two, you know, capital T social truths, right? To be like, oh, actually, what if this isn't true? Like I remember a, a story that you shared about acknowledging having the right as a patient not to get weighed at the doctor's office. Like Ooh, we just yeah. assume like I'm at the doctor, so I have to let them weigh me. And that's not true. No, there's this like giving over of of decision-making power to powers of authority that we really need to question more often. If I don't want to get on that scale, if I know getting on that scale is going to make me more anxious, experience a depression or a low mood for a while afterward, then why the fuck do I need to get on that scale? Especially for super fat and InfiniFact folks. So like, I know that if I get weighed on a scale and if that number increases from the last time I was on it, my insurance premium might go up or I might be, you know, denied certain health coverage because of that number. So what a lot of folks are not aware of is that a lot of surgical procedures or like your ability to get covered by insurance for certain things is sometimes determined by your BMI. Now, BMI has been totally debunked. It's obviously totally fake. However, this is a form of discrimination. And so what I learned during Fertility Awareness Week, uh, what I learned was that fat folks in particular experience a very specific form of discrimination where doctors will not cons- will not give like permission, where they are like gatekeepers, where they will not allow their fat patients to uh, undergo things like in vitro fertilization or any other fertility treatment solely dependent on their BMI. And I've, when I posted a story about it, I actually got a flood of stories from folks in my DMs talking about how the medical fat phobia that they experienced from a doctor was horrendous. So for example, like someone had messaged me that, you know, she was working with a fertility doctor and uh, she had successfully gotten pregnant. And when she experienced a miscarriage, the doctor was not like consoling her or comforting her. Instead, what the doctor had said was like, you know, thank goodness, because it actually would have been. And the reason the doctor said that was because the person was fat and, and she might've had a fat baby. Mm. And so, right. So there's this form of like eugenics. Now, when we talk about things like reproduction, where when we're preventing fat people from having fat children, you know, what are we really saying about what is a pure human race? We're giving really explicit messages about what is a valuable person and what type of people do we want to weed out 
from the human race. And that's when we need to get a little bit afraid <laughs> because uh, body diversity is very important. And that is not the only way to value people. And when we determine someone's worth as a human on their body size, we are more likely to experience such medical fat phobia that we are less likely to visit a doctor when something is really serious and emergent. And when we eventually go to the doctor, the medical fat phobia we experience can be deadly because there might be additional negligence due to the professional's fat phobia. There's also like high risk of um, misdiagnosis because a lot of times they just blame it on fat phobia. Uh, for example, uh, there's a woman's obituary that went viral um, in May of 2018. And I can give you the name of, of hers after, so you can put it in the show notes. She really wanted folks to know that the reason she died was because of medical fat phobia. And it was really explicit in her obituary because her doctors continued misdiagnosing her cancer as just fatness in her abdomen. And they would not do further tests to determine whether or not it was, you know, fat or cancer. And so what happened is her cancer went on too long and she died. And this is not just, this is not like the one time it happens. Right. Like it's, it happens all the time. And if you're, if you've got multiple, this was a white woman. And so I, I'm sure you can imagine if you've got other compounding experiences of oppression, like if you're black and fat, or if you're native and fat, you have other compounding experiences that are influencing that doctor's decision to not write in your medical chart that your doctor decided not to conduct further testing. Mm -hmm. So one intervention that I recommend uh, for my fat clients and, you know, really anybody is anytime you go to a doctor and your doctor is not taking your symptoms seriously or is not wanting to do a further test that you are, you know, specifically requesting, you can state. I would like that specifically written in my medical record that I requested you to do further testing and you refuse to do further testing. And what will likely happen <laughs> is the doctor will not want to write that in the record because then there's a huge malpractice liability yeah. at stake and you will get that further testing that you need. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great strategy. And, and like an important way to advocate for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's funny, I just looked at the clock and I had like a little moment of panic that I'm like, oh my God, you're going to have to come back on the show because there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. But like that even, you know, circling way back to earlier on in the conversation, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but talking about uh, that culturally like fatness, like it's supposed to be apologized for. You said something like along those, right? That you know, performing penance, yeah. I think is what you said. Yep. And so like, this is obviously like, medical industry, like institutionalized version of that, right? Whereas on the flip side, like no one's going to demand that someone who's thin, like demonstrates their health, Correct. right? Or performs Correct. health. And that it's just like this destructive tendency for people to need to prove their worth by having good health or like, there's just so much tied up in like even the health healthism thing that I don't know that we have time to get into, but that I would love to talk about <laughs> at some point. I'll come back. It's okay. But yes, there's a strong overlap in reasoning why we receive this really explicit messaging about food as well as sex, which is like so interesting because that's like, you know, my natural overlap as the fat sex therapist. But what we receive here in the U.S. is this like really explicit conversation 
through Christian colonialism and white supremacy about how when you abstain from food, you know, thinness is a moral virtue. And when you abstain from sex, you know, the same virginity and purity is a moral virtue. We receive identical messages, and that's because of Christian colonialism and the way that there exists this Christian supremacy here in the U.S. And so when we are decolonizing it, what I'm doing is making space for other ideologies to exist and for us to be able to question that messaging as, you know, do we need to accept that as fact uh, all the time or can we negotiate it for folks so that it, it fits better? Because that doesn't work for me. And so I'm going to question all things that don't work for me. And I encourage, you know, all of us to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also with the knowledge that if it doesn't work for you, you are not the only one. <laughs> rarely, very rarely are you going to be the only one. Yeah. So that's a good place, I think, to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with a series of community questions. So the Patreon community puts forward some questions this season and most seasons. It's nine sort of rapid fiery questions that basically all eight guests of the season are answering the same questions. If you're down to answer some totally random questions. Oh my God, totally. <laughs> you're like, bring it. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? Ooh, telling my friends that they're annoying me. Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> I have a really hard time with it. I have a really hard time letting a friend know that I have an emotional need. And so I'm getting better at it. Yeah. What's one thing that you have found challenging lately that you've been struggling with? Oh, chores. I have a really hard time like cleaning my apartment on a regular basis. And sometimes it's just because I go through like low moods and dips in energy and I'm having a hard time with it. And so I'm considering hiring a cleaning service so that I stop feeling so guilty and ashamed about the filth that I live in. <laughs> yeah. I, lo- I mean, I love that even just, I mean, not that I love, not, I don't love that you're going through that, but this idea that, okay, this problem does have a solution potentially. Yes. Right. And yes. you know, and that's an area where, yeah, if there is money to be put towards a problem, if that is something that we can do, then we can give ourselves permission to do that. Right. Just outsource it and stop letting it take up mental space. Oh my God. I have many things that I would like to outsource, but unfortunately <laughs> I'm the one who has to do them. So <laughs> I... what's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Oh, it used to be makeup, but now that I've come into my gender identity where I feel a little bit more masculine than feminine these days, I am feeling more freedom from having to perform my femininity, which is actually hyper femininity because for fat folks, especially, there's this like demand for a really overperforming gender so that um, people know how to treat us. <laughs> uh, but nowadays, what do I splurge on? I like to splurge on vacation. This is so boring, but like vacation with my friends and also like going out to eat to a nice restaurant. I mean, those are, oh. that's not boring at all. That sounds amazing. Oh. Yeah. Let's go on vacation like and eat like really good so food. <laughs> yeah. Uncool though. I feel like everyone probably does that. Oh, okay. Here's a good one. That's actually unique to me. Uh, art. So I really like to splurge on art created by folks of color. So I have, if you were to come to my apartment and if you were to see like where I'm sitting right now at, at my desk, there's this like beautiful watercolor painting. And I also love portraits, especially So it was this like beautiful watercolor painting of this like black man with glasses and this like chiseled jaw. And around him are these like really floating, beautiful betta fish with these like 
flowing fins um, that are like pink and purple. And it's one of my favorite art pieces um, by, by an artist of color. Mm, yeah. Being able to splurge on surrounding yourself with things that are beautiful to you. Yeah. Yeah. One kind of tangential side question that I wanted to ask you based on what you just said about it used to be makeup and, you know, part of that was performing femininity. I think mm-hmm. it was in your bio um, that there was an identity term that I had never heard before. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, it was BEM, yes. I think. Was it BEM? Yeah, BEM. Okay. Teach me teach me about that, please. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a word that is an amalgamation of butch and femme. And it is different from footch, which is femme and butch, because I use bem meaning that I lean a little bit more butch than femme. And, you know, butch to me doesn't feel like hypermasculinity where I'm wearing like work boots and stuff. Like, you know, I would love to reach that level where I'm wearing like, you know, hot work boots and like rolled up boyfriend jeans or like, you know, boot cut jeans and like a flannel. I would love to get to that level. I'm still learning where to find clothes in my size that perform, that present that gender that I'm looking for, that gendered look. Um, but generally day to day, I feel very femme. I feel a very mixture of butch and femme, which to me feels like a feminine masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I like it a lot. Yeah, thanks. So back to our little rapid fiery questions. Tell me <laughs> about a time that you failed at something. It could be something big or small, but a story of failure that comes to mind. Ooh. I got to think about this one for a second. Because I'm so good at reframing my failure as a lesson. As like, oh, you know, it you failed, but you like you learned something about yourself. Yeah. So I'm trying to think. I mean, I think times. that's that's always we're, we're always learning, right? It's uh, this question was sort of born out of the desire to make failure more neutral. I think meaning that I think we really are quick to rewrite it. Well, it's not a failure because, and yet, if you have a stated goal that you don't meet, like you failed to meet it. Why is that not okay to say, right? So this idea of just being able to name, like, sure, I failed at that. doesn't mean you didn't also learn things, but this idea that like, it doesn't have to be seen as this like cataclysmic, terrible thing, right? If you failed at something. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I'm going to admit something to you. I'm actually very averse to making goals because of my uh, fat trauma in being raised in diet culture, Mm -hmm. where if I would set like a weight loss goal, or if I would set like a, I don't know, some kind of like fitness goal that I would never meet it because, you know, it's a diet. It's not meant to work. Yeah. And so I have this history of like not being able to meet goals. So I have like this strong resistance to even making goals. And so when I set goals, they're like extremely attainable. Like (laughs) (laughs) if you were to look at my to-do list, it's like brush your teeth. Take out the trash. <laughs> Drink some water. Um, I'm like very, I mean, I'm learning about myself that I have a really hard time with failure sometimes and also like bumps in the road. Like, for example, like, so what that means is that I'm scared to take the leap because I'm afraid of that failure. Yeah. And so I won't bother, I'll just wait for like opportunities to come to me. I won't bother like risking and reaching out. Um, Something that happened to me like about six months ago was this like random, you know, freak vandalism 
where someone like bashed in my windshield and it was like me and another car that was parked on the street in front of me. So I didn't feel totally alone, but it was just like this really hard experience of like, my day is messed up and my car is messed up and I've got to pay all this money that I didn't have saved. And like my plans are like my, my plan, my plan didn't happen the way it needed to happen. And that feels like I wasn't able to process as quickly as I usually do. I wasn't able to like bounce back Mm -hmm. and snap back as quickly. It took me like several days but that was like something that I didn't do. But you're looking for a thing. No, no. You're I mean, but like... not even necessarily like the answer that you just gave, I feel like is the honest answer, right? Like, even, oh, okay. like okay. talking about that. No, that's again, there's, it's not a test, right? There's no like right <laughs> answers, but just, but hearing like your honest reflection on that, like that's awesome. Yeah. No, I appreciate that so much. When you feel yeah. stuck, what's something that helps you to keep moving forward? Ooh, doing something that is totally unrelated and doing something that is fun and removing some, myself from the space that that I'm feeling stuck in. So like if I'm writing a proposal or like for a conference or if I'm writing an email that I'm like spending too much time on, I will like get up and move away from my desk and I will like hang up a piece of art in mm-hmm. my apartment or I will like go and start a load of laundry or I will like, you know, when is the last time you ate Sonali? Like I will go and make some lunch you know, just for example. Yeah, totally. What's one thing that feels really important to you right now that you're intentionally spending time and energy on? Oh, so I know this podcast is coming out a few weeks after the crescendo of this experience I'm going through right now, but we're recording this in mid January and I'm going through this intense cyberbullying attack right now. And something that's really important to me is right now publishing a public statement about why it is so unsafe in the U.S. to talk about Palestine and how it's it's so unsafe to talk about Palestine because of the U.S. and Israel war economy. And the public statement is on like the tip of my mind because I'm in the middle of working on it. I've got to release it in a couple of days because I don't know what is going on. I don't think this is going to go away for a long time because Zionists are pissed off. Zionists are really upset when people talk about Palestine. So that's on the tip of my mind right now. Yeah. I'm also just going to say, and I'll put links to this in the show notes. I've started learning a lot about this specifically, even just from the highlights that you have tagged in your, like the stories that you have highlighted and the articles and and things that you link to. So I'll make sure to put a link to that for other folks too. Thank you. Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had a a big impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Oh my God. So this is so shameful, but I'm literally, I turned to my right and there's a bookshelf of probably 1000 books. And if I were to tell you how many I've read, I probably could count on one hand that I've read the whole book. So I definitely recommend... You Have the Right to Remain Fat by Virgie Tovar. It is an exceptional introduction to diet culture and this similar concept of understanding how desirability, well, how fat um, queers the body and how desirability impacts the way 
our bodies are treated um, throughout the whole throughout our whole lives, like not just in romantic relationships, but at the coffee shop, at work, um, within our families. So you have the right to remain fat. Um, I will also say there's a book by Harriet Brown called Body of Truth. And it is about the history of fat phobia and talks a little bit about racialization. And there's actually, um, and the third book that I'm, I'm sorry, this is terrible because this is not a book I've read. Okay, no, I'm not going to give you that book, not the third one. I'll give you a different book that I have actually read. And it's a different genre. I mostly read nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like nonfiction a lot because I like to learn. Uh, this book is called The Financial Diet. And it's not about dieting at all, thankfully. But the title is kind of whack. But it is a great primer on budgeting and understanding money. And I am really interested. And one thing that really gives me anxiety is saving for retirement. And it gives me anxiety because I'm like worried that capitalism is not going to survive that long, <laughs> that it's not going to survive, you know, 30 more years. Mm-hmm. So I really like, I'm really diving into like uh, financial books. I just bought another book called Bad With Money by Gabby Dunn. Um, and it's also a podcast. So I'm going to start listening to that because I want to be better with money. Yeah, I love that. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Question everything that doesn't work for you. Mm. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you for a reason. If there is some social ill that you are observing and you're like, why is the world like that? That's so wrong or that's so unfair. I want you to know in your bones and in your body that it exists the way it does because someone is making money off of it. That is the only reason that unfairness persists. Whatever oppression it is, whatever unfairness it is, the root of it all is usually capitalism. Yeah. Follow the money thread. I love that idea of questioning everything that doesn't work for you. I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? (laughs) The only way is going to be through Instagram. (laughs) And I'm saying that because of the cyberbullying that's going on right now. So my Twitter and Facebook are totally shut down. And through Instagram right now, I am on there as the fat sex therapist. And if you have questions about anything that I wrote about, or you just want to send me like a cute love note, you can always reach me through my website, and that is sonaliar.com, and that's spelled S-O-N-A-L-E-E-R.com. I love it. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Sonali, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. What are you totally obsessed with right now? 
I am totally obsessed with yoga right now. Um, I do this hot vinyasa flow to hip hop music in New York City, and I'm I'm all about it, twenty four seven, three sixty five. I've been thinking potentially about getting back into yoga. I like never really found yoga that I really loved, or I I don't know, maybe I didn't do it long enough to fall in love with it. But maybe this is a good reminder that maybe I should check it out again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had never loved anything before this, so I definitely think it's like right to find your own like when you find a style you like. I think it's easy to fall in love with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's one thing that you've been really awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little. Uh, One thing I've been really awesome at lately is being a good friend and showing up for people um, in their big and small life moments. And I'm glad that I can be that kind of friend for my friends. Yeah. I love that. Will you say a little more about like for you, what does it mean to show up? Yeah. So to me, showing up means being there you know, if someone's having a rough day where they can feel like they can text me or call me or like just ask for a little support, but also, um, you know, actually physically showing up to events, whether it's a birthday party or a funeral or, um, even just like a coffee date that they've set up doing, doing those sorts of things, I think is really important in the big and the small ways. Yeah, I think so too. I just asked because I'm always interested in hearing people talk about this more. I've been thinking about this in my own life as I'm working on like doing this van build, right? And going through like some big changes. The couple of friends who, even though if they don't know anything about van building, have said like, hey, can I keep you company while you do this? Or can I stop by and check it out? Even if they're not on their own interested has been incredibly meaningful and like a good reminder that it's important to show up even if like the thing isn't something that we're on our own interested in, if that makes sense, right? Like if it's important to someone you care about, show up. <laughs> yeah, totally. So one of one of my best friends has kids and I don't have any children, but um, I've made it a point of, to ask about her kids regularly um, or, you know, or just like little milestones that I think are coming up because I think it's important. Like if someone is important to you, you should show interest in the things that they're interested in, even if it's not your top priority. Yeah, I totally it's agree. Because it's important to them. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I love that. What's your go-to song when you need a little mood boost or a dance party? Um, right now my go-to song is Drake Mob Ties, which, uh, sounds like not a great mood booster, but, uh, it's, it's amazing. So I'm really into Mob Ties by Drake right now. Okay. Okay. What's one goal that you're working toward this year? Uh, one goal I'm working towards this year is to not be so hard on myself. Um, especially like, right in the moment, if I make a mistake or miss something, um, instead of immediately jumping to the place of, I can't believe you did that, Ellen, um, coming from a place of compassion and knowing that I will get it done or get, you know, fix it. Um, so I don't need to like add an additional layer of judgment on top of the, the, the initial feeling, um, I'm trying to feel one feel like not layer my feelings and trying to just like feel the thing and not judge that feeling that comes up. This is, I have to imagine universally relatable. So I'm like, yep, yep, yep. I can definitely relate to that for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Because if you're not like feeling the feeling that if that comes up initially and you're, you're feel like you're more comfortable feeling the judgment or something else on top of it, you're never actually like getting to what, the real feeling is and you have to work through that. So, um, trying to like not be so judgmental of my own feelings and just feel them, um, is a big, 
a big thing that I've yeah. been working towards. And the last question, what's one thing that you've recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? I One thing I feel like is just how hard like daily life can, can be for everyone, um, regardless of what your day-to-day looks like. Um, I think just being honest and open about struggles helps everyone in the long run. Yeah, especially the daily stuff, right? It doesn't have to be some big cataclysmic thing, but just like being a person in the world is hard sometimes and being able to talk about that. Yeah. And like, just because it looks one way to someone doesn't mean that it feels that way necessarily. Like, um, and so I think like being open about the fact that like, yeah, I might look like a morning person, but sometimes I really struggle to get out of bed is like something that's helpful for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season. And I'm super grateful for that. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and then maybe your favorite thing about the community. Yeah. So I decided to support the show because um, I stumbled upon the podcast um, almost three or four years ago now and was listening and really enjoyed the com- the real conversations with individuals who were sharing themselves openly. And I loved the idea of putting dollars to um, those words from the community and them not coming from, you know, advertisers so that the real thing the whole community as a whole is is supporting these people in, in whatever they choose to be experts in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. Um, and my favorite thing about the community is the weekly Friday emails. Um, they always make me smile. And I often reread them when I'm having a rough patch. Oh, that means so much to me. I have a a folder in my Gmail um, that's, I think I've talked about this before, but it's, the tag is called warm fuzzies. And that's where I will tag when I get really like kind emails from people either like about the podcast or in response to the Friday emails or just things like that, that I tag them. And that's what I reread when I'm having like a tough day. So I get that. Yeah. I think it's like, they're just real thoughts and like real feelings. um, And like we said before, like people aren't always honest about that. And, um, knowing that like, you're not alone in whatever you're going through, I think is really powerful. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so will you share where you live and then if there's a social media link or something where people can say hi? Uh, yeah. Uh, I live in New York city. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram at EMGNYC. Easy, easy. I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, that support means so much to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.